Before we start, just a warning that there is a bit of sensitive language in this podcast, so make sure young ears aren't too close by. This episode also discusses topics of mental health, so if you or someone you know needs someone to speak with, they can call Beyond Blue, who offer immediate support 24 hours a day, 7 days a week on 1300 22 4636. Before I had my car accident, I did quite a bit of work in the shearing sheds and then I fell in love with with the fibre itself. So I thought to myself, if I can source some good wool and if I can figure out how I can knit with one hand, I can make myself something warm. This is Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling stories of women living in rural and regional Australia. Welcome back to season four of the podcast. We have some really important stories coming your way this season. I'm Sky Manson, your host. When you're 20 years old, can you remember what life was like? Maybe you're 20 now. Mostly it's dominated by work, well-lubricated social events and exploring the world. And this was definitely the case for Samantha Longmore from Bynalong in southern New South Wales. Until one night, something you could never imagine happened. And for her, this carefree world was gone forever. One night, after being unexpectedly called up to work a night shift at a nightclub in Canberra, Sammy had a car crash on the way home in the early hours of the morning. And then the ambulance she was travelling to hospital in also crashed. And the injury she sustained when she was sent flying through the front windscreen left her a hemiplegic and in a wheelchair for life. I've told Sammy's story a few times now and you can probably hear that my voice still shakes a little bit when I explain it. It's just so frightfully tragic. But Sammy is not one to pity. She is a complete legend, fighter and all-round good girl. In her typically frank way, we speak about all things in this interview, about navigating the doctors and the health system at the ripe old age of 20 years old, finding a boyfriend while in a wheelchair, what she loves about farm life and the development of her own baby, woolen knitwear business, oh bulldust. Tell your friends about Sammy. She is truly one of a kind with a whole lot more life left to give. She starts by explaining exactly what her condition, hemiplegia, is. I have right side hemiplegia. So it's um, technically paralysis down the right hand side of my body. If you can think of um, someone who's paralysed from the waist down, half of their body, I'm the other way. Um, And that affects both touch to my skin, my insides, movement, absolutely everything in that regard. Um, Yeah, so it's left me in a wheelchair and I I can't use my whole right hand side of my body. Okay, and how did this happen? Um, Crazy to think actually, but it was just over, it was about seven and a half years ago now. I, um, I had a couple of car accidents which always tends to, you know, take people off guard a little bit. Um, one after the other. So I didn't sleep for about three, three nights. 
and I was working two jobs at the time, so working Monday to Friday on a farm and then Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights at a nightclub in Canberra. So the drive from where I was living to where I was working in Canberra was about an hour and a half, a little bit longer depending on traffic. And yeah, I would work during the day on a Thursday um, at the nightclub on the Thursday night, work again on the Friday on the farm. And this particular weekend, I worked uh, the Friday night at the nightclub and then I was supposed to have the, the Saturday and the Saturday night to myself. Um, we, myself and a group of my friends from Canberra, we were heading over to the Harden Picnic races on the Saturday, so, and I was the sober driver. So I hadn't had any sleep. I went straight to their house after I finished work and um, couldn't get in because it was quite early in the morning. So I tried to have a kip on their little front porch. It was quite cold too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, we ended up heading to Harden and had a great day at the picnic races. But as I was driving, I wasn't drinking at all throughout the day. So everyone got quite sloshed by the end of the races themselves, as you do. Mm. And I thought, perfect, I'll go home and go to bed. Um, and kind of as I was thinking that, I got a text message from my boss at the nightclub wanting me to come in to work that Saturday night and I didn't, didn't want to. Um, and I thought, oh, well, okay. <laughs> I'm 20 years old at the time, what are you gonna say? And I thought, well, I'm not doing anything anyway. I'm only going home to go to sleep, let's go to work. Not thinking too much of it as you, as you don't being that little bit younger. Um, had a great night at the nightclub. Felt a million bucks. I didn't feel like I hadn't slept for three days. Mm. Um, so as you do, I got in my car, went to drive home, dropped into Gold Creek service station and got myself um, something to eat, something to drink. And that's sort of the last thing I remember. I remember pulling out of the service station and up onto um, the Barton Highway. Um, and that is, sort of it and I think where I had my car accident is um, at a place called Capricorn Stud. A lot of people know it. it's got the white fence with the roses along it and that sort of thing which would be about I don't know 15 minutes or so out of Canberra mm. so I fell asleep and ended up on the opposite side of the road through a six foot, six foot pool fence um, and somehow managed to get myself out of the car. So I don't remember any of this. It's all been kind of relayed back to me from the people who found me. A couple of nurses uh, were on their way home from their night shift. So I was lucky. <laughs> they found me and then a, a builder fella. Um, I've never seen these people since. Mm. Um, they found me and obviously called the emergency services and then I got put into a, an ambulance. But after that accident, I was generally all right. Um, and then my ambulance had another accident heading to the hospital. So they um, rear-ended a car that was stopped at red traffic lights and I went headfirst into the backs of the front seats. Um, so from then I received a brainstem and C-spine injury from that which caused my paralysis down my right hand side. Do you remember any of that part of no, that? I remember waking up in hospital mm. um, and still like your body's in shock, your mind is in shock, everything is in shock. So for the first few weeks after my car accidents, I don't like, I remember bits and pieces, like I kind of remember seeing random people's faces. Um, I don't really remember much of a conversation. Um, 
or anything like that for the first couple of weeks just because you're on so so many painkillers mm. and so much is happening and you're sort of trying to come to terms with what's actually going on and you're sleeping a lot. Um, yeah, so that was interesting and I didn't really come to realise what had happened for quite some time. For probably three weeks, maybe a month, um, before I actually, I was like, okay, this has happened. I'm really angry about it for various reasons. Um, what next? How long am I here for? All I wanted to do was go home. Mm. I was so angry because I wanted to go home so bad, thinking, you know, I'd wake up the next day and I'd be fine. Mm. I could go back to my life. Um, yeah, and it was, it was interesting because you have so many outside pressures from your family and friends, not that they mean to do anything, but because everyone's in such high hopes that everything's going to be okay, you're trying your hardest to try and make that happen. Mm. And it's a lot of pressure and it's only pressure that we put on ourselves in that situation. Um, but yeah, there was, there was a few things going on then. And that, so that's why you wanted to go home so desperately so that you could just get away from the expectation of what people wanted for you for your new life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I always believe you heal better at home anyway, mm. but it was, the reality was that wasn't going to happen and that wasn't going to happen until I could sit up. Um, you know, I didn't get a, I didn't get to have a shower for about three weeks. I didn't get a, a bed bath, I didn't get anything for about three weeks. So you can imagine what it's like your own body day to day, you know, without having a shower for two days. It's pretty gross. I had like matted hair, everything. It was, it was just rubbish. Like I had a, a little bit of a shit experience um, initially in hospital. It was really, really quite hard. And I think, you know, everyone's different. Everyone, you know, you might get beautiful care and, you know, beautiful specialists and people that really want to help you and then you might get a bit of both mm. and then you might get people who just I don't know it's the luck of the draw really and and unfortunately I ended up with the the shitty end of it oh how awful yeah I, so that was hard and from the from from the moment of the accident were you unable to walk from that point forward yep yep so you were on your back yep for how long until I had a shower, but I was weeks. still then not even sit, sitting up properly. I was on like a like a stretcher bed that could go in the water that can kind of like elevate you or, or not. So mm. I was still sort of laid down then. Mm. And like my transition to sitting up, sitting in a wheelchair, manoeuvring the wheelchair and that kind of thing was slow because I don't really have that would have balance and especially then um, I could barely be touched to even be rolled over or changed so they can change the bed and that kind of thing so sitting up was not something that was happening very quickly but it would have been around that you know three to four week mark um, I remember going to physio in the hospital one day and trying to sit up from from being you know laid back flat on the bed and sitting up and vomiting all over the place because you know dizziness and that kind of thing it was really hard and the and pain that, yeah hmm. yeah nerve pain you know you think sometimes you know I've got sore legs I've got a sore back that kind of thing nerve pain is unbelievable 
it is, oh, even still to this day, seven and a half years later, it's something that I have to put up with. You don't know whether your toes are on fire. You don't know whether they're even there anymore. And that's my entire body because of the injuries that I have. Um, but from that day, first sitting up in, you know, in that physio session, um, I thought to myself, right, we're going to do this and we're going to do this 10 times a day, whether I spew 10 times a day, doesn't matter. This is what's going to happen. And it went from that to then being put in a wheelchair. But after so many years meeting so many different people who are in similar situations to myself or just in a wheelchair in general, they go through almost like a wheelchair school, you know, and I never even really got that. I didn't, I didn't get taught how to get up a step or, or anything. And, um, I just got chucked in this 20 kilo wheelchair and this is kind of how you do it. So chuck a lap and come back. And you had to work it all out. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And Uh, do you say these things like your care in the hospital and things, um, wasn't that good because yes, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, how would you, you know, you don't number one expect that you'll ever be in this situation. And I suppose in such an awful time, you, just uh, going with the flow and, um, you know, doing yeah. what, what you're told and just in shock at the same time. Yeah. So is it in hindsight that you know that you that the care was yeah. as good as it could have been? Yeah, and, and like I just said, meeting so many different people who have been in my situation or currently are in my, a similar situation to myself, learning about all of the support that they've had and everything that, you know, they've been able to get access to, especially up around Sydney and in your, you know, your city type areas. Mm. Um, and being so, I don't know, that being also unknown to me, either not having any idea what they're talking about or thinking to myself, oh, Jesus, I didn't, I didn't get any of that. Like that might've been why it took me so long to figure out how to I don't know, do a wheelie in my wheelchair, you know, <laughs> which is actually quite important to be able to get around, especially where we live. Really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. To be able to get up and down gutters and just over, you know, if there's a hose on the grass or something, to be able to get over that, you need to be able to maneuver the wheelchair enough around to be able to do that. And yeah, I think it's just been a gradual thing. Initially, I was, like you said, going with the flow and um, doing what I was told most of the time uh yeah so I guess I've got a little bit of a um bad bad blood there I suppose um but also that was a challenge that I managed to get through myself and I know I'm stronger because of that so thank you in the next breath Mm. yeah so how long was it until you were home my goal was to get home for Christmas and I had my accident on the 23rd of October 2013 27th of October 2013 sorry um and I got home for Christmas and then I got pretty sick and I was sent to Sydney in St Vincent's Hospital um where I met some specialists and where I met some people who would then later on help me um have a couple of surgeries and meet some different people that can help me throughout my life so um, so that was good. So all up, I was in hospital, 
I'm going to say from the moment I had my accident till right now, I've spent probably six months, seven months in total mm. without this, with the surgeries and um, the, you know, the general say after the car accident and things like that. Yeah. So was it a blessing that when you became sick at Christmas time and was that to do with your condition or were you just, did you have yeah. a low immune system and you caught the flu badly or? No, it was to do with my condition because um, I can get really bad UTIs from one sitting down and, you know, troubles with my bladder and my bowels. Um, and it, yeah, it just so, and really bad headaches mm. too. You know, if you, you get projected head first into the backs of a front seat of a, of a vehicle doing 90 kilometers, um, you're going to get headaches pretty well. So it was a mixture of all of those. And, um, yeah, we were introduced to, um, a specialist up in Sydney, Dr. Timothy Steele, who was the head of, um, the neurosurgery up in the St. Vincent's private hospital. And yeah, so that, that was a blessing and these doctors, if they didn't know something, they wouldn't then ask three or four other people. They just wouldn't do it. Or they'd, they'd make their own decision decision without, you know, trying to find second, third, fourth opinions. And I personally think that's really important because no one's ever been able to take a brain or a spinal cord out of someone, research it and put it back in and think they're still gonna live. There's so much that is so unknown about all of that that you do need the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, tenth opinion mm. um, in everyone's situation. And, uh, you know, Tim Steele was was good at doing that. And so, if, you know, um, my specialist that I've dealt with since, which has been really nice. And, and that was all to do with me driving who I wanted to mm. speak to. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, you think that at the... You think that when you get put into the medical um, sphere that they know it all and that they, but really it does have to come from you, doesn't it? Which is, you're so ill-equipped to do so in yeah. the, initially and also considering everything that you're going through physically, yeah. emotionally, mentally. Yeah, mm. absolutely. So there's two constant things in your life now, or three, probably where you live, who you're with and what you do. Yeah. So when did you meet your partner Jude? 12 months pretty well to the day after I had my car accident. So I had my car accident the day after the Harden Picnic races and I met Jude at the Harden Picnic races 12 months later <laughs> which was really cool. Um, and you went to the races. Yeah How yeah so we went there for like a bit of a you know 12 month hurrah you know we sort of managed to get through the the hardest part of that and you know I wanted to spend it with my friends and drink alcohol and all of that fun stuff. And what sort of state were you, how were you 12 months after? Um, pretty good, you know, like obviously dealing with being able to get around and things like that was really hard because I wasn't able to drive a car or anything like that. So that was really difficult, but um, it's quite interesting. You find yourself with heaps of friends after a situation like that and heaps of people who want to be around you. Um, so for the first 12 months, oh, it was great. It was great. And especially by that time, like, um, you know, I was just had a new lease on life, mm. sort of 
had more of a had more of a will to live, I suppose. Like you just have a different mindset when when something dramatic happens to you, and you have so much time to think about yourself and how you want to live the rest of your life. So at that stage, I was like, yes, you know, one year down however many more to go and you're not knowing what's next but also in the same breath you're hopeful that one day you'll wake up and everything will be okay if that makes sense um it's hard you're sort of to and a froing a little bit in your own mind but at that one point I wasn't looking for a boyfriend um I was looking to have some fun with my friends and he just so happened to come along with a really good friend of mine Ange um and some other mates and I guess the rest is almost history I didn't talk to him I shouldn't say this but we got quite sloshed that night and two days after I was supposed to be going to Sydney for um, some pretty serious surgery so very irresponsible of me to be (laughs) in that situation but is, is it though? I mean, I wouldn't know. Do you? Oh, look, if you're going to have the back of your head and your neck cut <laughs> open and be under the knife for quite a few hours, it's probably not a good idea to be drinking your weight in alcohol. <laughs> um, but anyway, I, we know. shouldn't laugh. But, <laughs> but this is your reality, isn't it? Like you're a young person who's been um, just dealt a huge blow in life. And so I suppose a lot of the time you're just like, oh, well fuck it, I'll just do what I want. Yeah. It makes me feel good now. Yeah, exactly. And I was in that situation. Like, my body's hurting already. It's only going to hurt just the same the next day. Yeah, so it's it's interesting because it was over just a couple of weeks that Jude and I sort of started chatting to each other and, you know, realising our mutual friends and things like that. And, um, yeah, it kind of just happened. And one night he stayed over and... He sort of said, so you want to be my girlfriend? <laughs> and we've been together ever since. Which is like, how long is that now? Uh, six and a half years. That's amazing. Yeah, six and a half years, pretty well. A bit nervous first getting with him because life was different. Mm. My life was, I, I didn't know how to navigate a boyfriend. Like, um, you know, and those stupid thoughts that come into your mind. Why would he want to be with me? You know, it would stop him from doing so many different things and that kind of thing. But it was kind of... I wouldn't say the other way around, but we kind of encouraged each other to do more, which is great. I'm pretty headstrong too, so <clears throat> that was good for both of us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and is he too? Yeah, yeah, quietly, quietly headstrong. Um, quiet spoken, pretty chilled out kind of guy. So I know when, when I get a little bit, you know, in a bit of a tiz and life's come crashing down on my head, then, you know, he's he's able to pull me into line and kind of... Yeah, it's all right. Mm. We can sort of do this. We've done this now for you know six and a half years. We can continue to do it, which is really cool. So we we live out here on the farm that he looks after, um, and yeah, it's great. We'll be back in just a moment, but now a quick word from our sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Something to Hide, the riveting new novel from best-selling author Flo MacDonald. With a sickening realisation that his cover's been blown, Detective Dave Burrows knows his family's in serious danger. His wife, Mel, understandably frightened, must decide who 
she'll listen to. Can she trust Dave to handle this threat hanging over their family from a pair of vengeful stock thieves and murderers? Or is her father right to argue that she should leave her marriage immediately? Flo was recently our guest on Life on the Land, and when you hear her story, there's just no doubting the skills she has in writing tension and drama, and something to hide is no exception. It's another page turner, and that's why Fleur is Australia's leading writer of rural suspense. If you're running short of time before Mother's Day, this could be the gift you're looking for. Something to hide, available now, wherever books are sold. Tell me more, though, about what that was actually like, navigating a relationship, being two young people and you are unexpectedly in a wheelchair and have, you know, a level of, certain level of mobility. Was it um, just normal for you or was it funny, terrifying? A bit of everything. A bit of everything. Yeah, a bit of everything. Like, here I am wanting to try and do everything that everyone else is doing, Mm. wanting to be the person who I thought Jude was kind of looking for. So trying to deal with that was really difficult. Um, You know, and our sex lives and things like that, like that is massive. That's a massive thing to kind of go through Mm. together. And I think if it was anyone else, you know, it's not something that you can just jump into I don't think like when you your whole life turns upside down and you can't walk around you can't you know you think you're not sexy and you think you're not that and I don't know trying to navigate that was was hard Mm. but it just felt comfortable and I think it's because he was such an easygoing guy Um, and we have so many common interests and we can laugh about stupid stuff all the time and that made it comfortable too yeah, but sometimes I'd hate, you know, going to the footy or something like that and, you know, having played league tag and touch and that sort of stuff beforehand. I'd, I'd always get, in the beginning, really torn about that. And, yeah, that like that was tough on a relationship too, you know, wanting to do these things but not being able to. Water skiing, for example, in the beginning. Mm. Christ almighty, something that I would do every weekend in summer beforehand and then not being able to do that at all. Um, half drowning in the middle of Burrinjuk Dam at one point because I fell out of the boat. <laughs> like, and just that was kind of hard. Mm. But once we got more comfortable with each other and, you know, he understanding what I needed, it's like a well-oiled machine. Yeah. Trust is yeah. a big thing. Yeah. 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 So, you know and adapting tell me about yeah. water skiing that's the best it's amazing and i can't believe the weather is like it is at the moment because it would still be water skiing <laughs> can you tell me how you actually do it and how did you discover that you could do it um i just googled and jumped on instagram and youtube and everything just to see whether there was something like that that i could do because i tried wheelchair basketball and rugby and all of that kind of thing and mm. with my uh, disability that sort of sport is quite difficult whereas if I had two arms to push a wheelchair Mm. then you know for sure I'd do that flat out 
and I love water skiing and I love to drink beer and hang down at the river with my friends and you know it was great so I just googled and instagrammed and you name it and I found the New South Wales Disabled Water Ski Club's Instagram page and I thought oh they don't really put many photos or anything up but I'll message them and it just so happened they were having a common try day in Sydney so I thought oh I'll bring my life jacket that I have and um, we'll come up and see what it's all about and yeah, it's um, pretty well what I ski on now. Like I've been doing it now for a couple of years, but a lot just in the last 18 months, I suppose. Um, it's like a single ski, a little bit wider. And I have a cradle that's kind of made for me. It's got a foot plate on, on the front of the ski. So both my feet kind of go in that. And there's a bit of a, um, like a sash that goes around my heels. And um, the cradle has a sling in it. So that's what holds you in there. And you hang on to the rope and you get up pretty well exactly like you would an, a normal single skier, but you're sitting down. Yeah. And like people will see me get out of the water now, like up on to the water on my ski and think that it looks so goddamn easy. Mm. But for those people who have single skied before, you know how hard it is on your body to try and get out of the water. Try and do that with only half the use of your body because it's exactly the same. Um, so I hang on to the rope with one hand and my right arm can't go past a 90 degree angle. It's stuck at the elbow. So I have a little sleeve that's made out of wetsuit material that I chuck on my arm to protect my skin. And I just put the handle in there to try and balance my body so I don't fall over. Mm. Um, so it doesn't take any weight. It just It's just there and yeah. Go through the slalom course. What was it like when you first got fell up? off heaps? Fell off heaps, was but it, it was terrifying? amazing. Um, no, not terrifying. Exciting. Mm. Um, it's a mental game, really. I'm very headstrong and very competitive, and I was not stopping. Getting like getting up was the hardest part, but once I got up out of the water and on top of it. I felt like I was the coolest person in the entire world. Yeah, because you were. <laughs> I cried. When I was up, I was bawling my eyes mm. out with so much joy. Mm. And so was everyone else. Everyone's <laughs> like, oh, my God, this, oh, my God. And, yeah, now it's just normal. I felt like there was 50 million sea seagulls looking at me when <laughs> we got up out of the water. Everyone's like, oh, my God, because they see you cruising around in the wheelchair and people just think that you can't do those things. When in reality, we can do anything that we want to do. It's finding a way. Yeah. How good. Yeah. So yeah. tell me about your life on the land and living on a farm. Did you grow up on a farm? I'm going to say yes and no. Both yes and no. Um, my dad and I, so I lived with my dad from when I was about seven. We moved to a little town called Gaylong when my parents split up. I think population of about 100. <laughs> For a good part of the time that we were there, uh, we lived out on a farm just out the road. And he, like my dad's a mechanic, could fix all their broken stuff and that kind of thing. So I was always around that kind of lifestyle. Um, but my first job was landmarking which was really cool. And that's where I fell in love with absolutely everything to do with the land, yeah. um, which was really cool. So what did you fall in love with? What do you love about Initially the little it? lammies, yeah. obviously. 
uh, at the age of 14, 14, 15. <laughs> but just how freeing it is. Just how, you know, you can be in your own head comfortably and everyone can be working so hard, but you're like, and, and singularly, oh, this probably doesn't make much sense, but, you know, there could be five, six people around the sheep yards doing their marking. You're working very hard as a team, but you're, you know, not really saying much to each other. And it, it's just free and you finish work and, you know, you might have a cold drink or you sit down for lunch and you all have sandwiches and laugh and yeah. it's beautiful and you're surrounded by trees and hopefully green grass and if not dirt and that's okay too. Yeah, that's um, still beautiful. Yeah. yeah, and you get home and you get to have a good night's sleep and, you know, or you might be out, I don't know, mustering sheep on your own but you never feel like you're on your own. Whereas if I go to Sydney, even Canberra, surrounded by so many people and I feel so goddamn lonely. Obviously working on the farm before I had my accident and working for various different people, both, you know, in the shearing sheds and, you know, doing a bit of farm contracting type stuff myself. And then not being able to do mm. that was really hard. And even still now, I'm like far out, you know, I can't even help much. <laughs> like I don't, initially I thought I don't belong here anymore there's no real place mm. and you know that that led me to my to my business but um I had to teach myself how to ride a four-wheeler so I can help out mustering sheep which was bloody hard and Jude was like I don't even want to watch I can't believe you do that that's so good yeah so obviously how do you I get like, on it uh just transfer <laughs> <laughs> um yeah bit of, it's a bit tough um, but just generally just try and get out of my wheelchair and put my ass on the seat and yeah. grab my legs and swing them over and uh -huh. around. Um, takes a lot of strength because the thumb throttle's on the right hand side. So I cross, I cross my arm over my body wow. and I steer and use the thumb throttle there at the same time. Uh -huh. um, and and if, if you need the brake? Foot brake. Or right. not. Or yeah. not. Or just slow down. Yeah. yeah. Or, <laughs> Which or that's, not. That's why Jude was like, oh, I don't want to watch this. But... Um, I grew up with my dad, like my dad's a mechanic. I was always going to be a little bit of a rev head and need for speed and that kind of thing. And that kind of tickled two, you know, two scratches or each two scratches at once. I was able to get on a four wheeler and I was able to help out with some farm work. So, you know, there are some things that I can do, but I'd love to be able to help out a little bit more. Tell me about Opal Dust. Yeah. <laughs> I want to know, like, yeah, what you were, the moment, what you were doing where you were like, I'm going to do this. I was pissed off with the world. Jude and I were living in this shitty little cottage before we moved into this, you know, big, grand, beautiful house, which didn't really matter, but it was really confining. Mm. Um, we'd always get bogged in our yard, so I couldn't even go outside. So I was just, you know, in a bit of a shitty headspace. Like I mentioned, I felt like I did not belong to this agricultural world anymore. I felt like I... Maybe, maybe I needed to be in the city. I didn't want to be there, but maybe I needed to to be able to move myself forward. Um, I had my first job landmarking and you know, fell in love with the little lambies, but I fell in love with the wooler there as well. And you know, before I had my car accident, um, I did quite a bit of work in the shearing sheds. And I loved the physical side of things, being aroused about, which was fantastic because I could just run around all day. But 
being able to come home, jump in the shower, you look at your hands, yeah, they might be full of burrs, but your fingernails are so soft. Your skin on your hands are so soft because you were just touching that wool and that oil on the wool all day. And then I fell in love with, with the fibre itself. And I thought one day while I'm pissed off with the world for, for no apparent reason, just because having one of those days, I thought I need to do something. I really, really need to do something. And I've always been quite creative. You know, um, my mum is quite creative. My, all my family really are quite creative in their own way. Um, so I was just sort of just blessed to have that too. So I thought to myself, if I can source some good wool and if I can figure out how I can knit with one hand, I can make myself something warm because I hate the cold. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we had any wood that day either, actually. Oh. I think there was, there was just a few things that stacked on top of each other. And um, yeah, and I made myself, a, long story short, I made myself a scarf. And then I had a friend of mine ask me if she could buy one. And then it kind of started to snowball from there. Just a few friends from in, in Bynalong town. And, and then someone bought the blanket. And I started with 200, I had $200. So after these people started to buy these things that I was making, I thought to myself, maybe I could you know, sell some of this stuff to help me make ends meet while I'm paying a solicitor to help me get a wheelchair. You know, there was just, other than the general life, there was always this legal thing mm. sitting there, like a bad smell. And I had $200, I think it was like my last $200 in my bank. Mm. So I purchased some wool and I kind of just worked with it, figured out what I could do with this wool. So tell me, how did you knit? How, how did you do it? There's like such beautiful products, these big, chunky woolen yeah, products, so, but you've only got the use of one hand. Yeah, so YouTube, I thought would help me heaps. It didn't because there was no one else that I could find that could knit with one hand. But I kind of took a concept, um, which is your arm knitting, and then I took another concept, which is your um, knitting with two big needles, and I kind of jammed them both together, really. That's, pre that's pretty well what it is. Um, and I teach that method now, which is kind of cool. Mm. But I knit with one stick pretty well, my hand and one stick. Um, so that stick can be put anywhere. And in, in the beginning, because I couldn't quite figure out how to have that stick on my body or yeah. somewhere, I had it um, wired to this little old wooden bench thing that I found in the back shed. And I'd knit onto the stick, off the stick and on my arm and back and forth, back and forth, just like you usually would arm knitting or knitting with your two needles. Did you enjoy it or was it more just about achieving yeah. an outcome? Both, both. It was feeling like I'd accomplished something, which was amazing mm. because in those early, early years of, you know, rehabilitation and things like that after my accident, there was not much other than your small little gains like sitting in a wheelchair for half the day and you know because they're little goals that you've got to try and get yourself to and I made something out of some uh, an idea that I created in my head from a product that I loved and sourced and um, I made this one thing and someone wanted to buy it and that was amazing like that felt so good like initially I was like oh my god what like why do you want one of these scarves are you serious 
go buy something nicer from somewhere else. Although it was fantastic that people were wanting to buy my things, I was very hard on myself. Like people are only buying my stuff because they feel sorry for me. Um, and still to this day, I'm like, holy Jesus, this person bought all of this stuff. Like, oh my God, that's so cool. But then I'm like, why? You know, did they Because it's beautiful. Something? Yeah. It is beautiful. And, and I understand that now too, you mm. know. And now I understand also that it could be both. Mm. Not that they feel sorry for me, but they think, wow, if someone like that can make something like this, I'm going to buy that thing. You know, yes, it's beautiful, but this is the other part of the reason. So I get that now too. Yeah. How did you get the name? Another shitty day. Really? <laughs> um, another shitty day. And where we lived at that, at that time in the shitty little cottage on that shitty little day, we were up quite a very long driveway and we were, we were landlocked. So we had to come in our driveway past, you know, three or four people's farms and then into the, the back end of the paddock, which was, you know, the, the end of the road. And I think at that time there was a couple of gates that were always shut. So for me, trying to come and go was a hard thing, even though there was ramps there, but long story short. Mm. Um, I'd had a bit of a tough day. I was out and I was coming back up the driveway. The sun was kind of setting um, in the background. Our driveway was just corrugations mm. and dust and rocks and, and everything. And I'm a bit of a swearer. So I was sort of thinking to myself, I looked in my rearview mirror and I thought, fuck, this is shit. Like this dust is just getting in my car and wrecking absolutely everything. Like my brakes are squeaky, this is squeaky, that's squeaky. Oh, now I'm going to have to pay for a new whatever or something like that. You know, just those silly thoughts that go through your head. And I thought I can't really say, I can't really call my business or I can't really say to too many people that, you know, fuck it <laughs> as much as I wanted to. And I thought, I hate this bulldust because it's kind of like my life at the moment. Everything's just a bit wrecked. And yeah, I got to know. It kind of just popped into my head. Oh, bulldust. It was a nicer way of saying, oh, fuck it. And some people get it and some people don't. Some people, they might've heard you know, I've heard my, my grandparents say from time to time, you know, bulldust or like bulldust as in, as in you're talking rubbish type thing. Yeah. So I guess a little bit of play on words on that shitty day without being too, I don't know, trash talking, I suppose. <laughs> and yeah. it's become, it's become so much more than just the scarves, hasn't it? It's led into what do you do with it now? It's led you in so many different avenues. Yeah. So a, b a bit of everything, like, um, I have all my, my knitted goods. So, you know, beanies and scarves and headbands, all of that kind of thing, blankets, um, custom bits and pieces that I can do, felted earrings, bows. I am about to, and it's been in the woodworks for about 12 months though, but I'm about to release a um, organic handmade lanolin oil lip balm. How good. And like salve, I think that's how you say it, like for your elbows and your bit, whatever, really. Um, for your sore spots, sunburn, you name it. So, you know, being able to use the whole 
you know, obviously I have lamb for dinner and I wear a scarf and then I put a little, little oil lip balm on. So, you know, it's, it's in the way of products, that's kind of how it's evolved from a scarf, scarf to a lip balm type thing. Um, but I also do um, speaking bits and pieces. So I tell my, my story and obviously about my business and its growth and things like that too. So that is Obal Dust as well. Because I think it's all everything. Mm. Um, and I also run workshops. So um, starting actually tomorrow, I have a workshop at 3.30 in the afternoon on a Tuesday. Really cool. Um, for like team building and that kind of thing. And it, it's a bit of everything. Like I teach people how I knit. I let them use both hands for a good majority of it. Otherwise, my brain would turn itself inside out. But for a, for a you know, five or ten minute period within a workshop, I take that um, their most dominant hand away from them in a nice way and teach them that, you know, everyone's like, oh, my God, I'm not going to be able, I can't, I can't, I can't do this. And sometimes I get a little bit abrupt with them. I'm like, no, stop, stop using that hand. Just stop it for a second. You're here, you're here doing this workshop because you want to learn something else or you want to have a day out or you want to drink wine, whatever. But you know, I teach them my resilience. I try and give back from what I've got from everyone else. And that's different lessons, various different lessons. And sometimes just a conversation, like sometimes women, anyone, women, men, I've had kids, you know, come along to these workshops and they might just be lonely and want a conversation and an honest one. I'm quite an honest person. Um, yeah, so that's, I kind of love that side of it most. Amazing. Yeah. So in 10 years time, what do you think your patchwork quilt of life is going to look like? So many things. Do you have any more uh, uh, big goals that you want to reach? I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know what 10 years time is going to look like. All I know is I don't want to be where I am in 10 years time. I want I want to have by then connected to so many more people. I want to in 10 years time have been sharing my story every single day of my life, helping people move forward business wise. I don't know, maybe I'll be teaching a workshop every day, who knows? Yeah. And I'd love that. Would you? you know, yeah. Maybe maybe I'd love my own space as well, you know. Jude and I also have a contract a harvesting contracting business, um, which is really cool. So maybe we'll be doing that too. I don't know, I've always been a bit of a fly by the seat of my own pants kind of person and I believe you know, what you put out to the universe is, is generally what you're going to get back in return. And if I put out my love, my happiness, my strength, my resilience, you know, my adaptability, my absolutely everything into the universe as much as I can, then in 10 years time, I'm going to be surrounded still by all of that. Hopefully running a business surrounded by the people that I love. In 10 years time, I'm, I'm hopefully going to be still very happy mm. and I believe that's really important. Um, maybe we'll have our own farm, who knows? 
<laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> and do you, my final question is, are you okay with being in a wheelchair now or do you wish that you weren't still? Some days I'm very okay with it. Other days the wheelchair could fall into a pot of molten lava mm. pretty well. And that's kind of going to be the rest of my life. And that's not a bad thing because, you know, just like everyone else, we all have highs and we all have lows for various reasons. You know, I wish I could go for a jog with my dog, but I can go for a wheel with my dog and that's great too. Um, I think being, in, being put in this position has helped me become the person I probably have always should have been. I should have, I should have always been this person. Um, I had the means and I had the, you know, the everything that I needed to be able to help people. And this put me in a position to almost make me do that. Mm. Mm. And I love it. But man, I used to love doing so many other things as well. Um, yeah, this is a love-hate relationship. It really is a love-hate relationship. <laughs> you are such a legend. I, I love chatting with you and learning from you. And I love watching what you come up with next. It's really, it's, um, there's always something new. So thank you for speaking thank with you. me on the podcast. Thank you. I loved it. <laughs> Absolutely loved it. Samantha Longmore has some seriously big goals. And as she mentioned, she's just discovered that she can water ski and she wants to make it to the World Championships for Disabled Water Skiing, which are going to be held in Victoria, hopefully next year. They've been cancelled and postponed due to COVID. And after hearing her story, I think we all know that she is totally going to make it. And as if that's not enough, she wants to start teaching others to water ski as well. Thanks, Sammy, so much for sitting down and sharing your story with us. Thank you also to our sponsor for this episode, Alan and Unwin. And before I head off, we all know it's Mother's Day so, so soon. And who wouldn't love the present of a Grazy Her subscription? Send a cheeky message to someone in your family with the website grazyher.com.au and maybe you could be so lucky. I'll be back next week with another story of life on the land. Oh, <laughs>